across the years, our family has had the opportunity to journey up to Washington, D.C. and to uh, make our way through the many museums that are there. Um, if you have not been, you need to go in to visit some of the treasures that our nation has cataloged in those places. In the National Gallery, it's always fascinating the things that you will find, and I suspect that they are often changing those uh, portraits and those paintings. I would not know, we don't go often enough to know which ones are being changed and which ones might not. But I do look forward to seeing certain artists, one of which is Edward Hicks. Edward Hicks was an artist uh, from the early 19th century. Uh, he was a Quaker minister. And uh, you may know his paintings. They are known as the Peaceable Kingdom. It's a series of paintings that, that he painted all on this same theme that uh, reflects that reading from Isaiah chapter 11, beginning with the sixth verse, the wolf shall live with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. It goes on to say the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in Edward Hicks' depictions, in a very folksy uh, style, he places lions and tigers and uh, lambs next to each other. Um, in fact, the the persons that habitate the scenes that he that he's painting um, are all uh, very connected with the animals uh, you might in a painting of the peaceable kingdom see a child with its arm resting over a lion and he is very intentional in showing his view of the way in which the world should be. Now, it was interesting to me to read recently that he had good reason for this, that there as this uh, peaceable kingdom that was supposed to be amidst the Quakers in his society of friends, they were dealing with grave conflict that was separating them in such dysfunctional ways that God birthed within him this this need this will to to place on canvas some picture of what might be uh, there on those canvases you could see uh, things that were out of order with the world even still a tree trunk where you could see that the tree had been blown down by the winds uh, upon the earth severe winds and and you you can see in his heart in his painting that he had this deep deep will that the world would be a peaceable place. You have a picture of the way things ought to be in your mind. I have no doubt about it. Uh, most of us have ideas, very specific ideas, of what heaven would be. It may be that your idea is just pleasantness, but it is multiplied to the nth degree. Whatever it is that you enjoy doing here on earth, you think to yourself, well, there will be utmost opportunity to avail yourself 
once you get to heaven. If you are a fisherman, you're gonna have ponds around every corner, right? Or if you are a golfer, golf courses all over the place and all of them at the standard of the masters, you know? This is an idea that people have of heaven. These ideas are not what Jesus was communicating with us. In fact, when we think about heaven, even at our best, when we think about the gathering of family, when we think about the gathering of those that have gone on before, there is still something that is far more what Jesus was referring to. Some of you know what I'm talking about. For Jesus focused not so much on the future as what was very present. Over the course of a number of years, I, as a pastor, have had the opportunity to be with many families who were grieving loved ones that had passed, and I've heard many stories about persons as they reached that point of death. And in one case, it was shared with me that the one who was dying sat up in bed, even though she had not sat up in bed for days and days. She sat up in bed and reached out her hand. Now, can you imagine how this affected the family? Almost as if she were taking hold of someone's hand just before she died, and how powerful this is the image of her outstretched hand and the imagination of Christ reaching out to take care of, of her, to hold her hand in that moment. Another family shared with me that their loved one said to them, at least within their hearing, just moments before she died, what's that beautiful music I hear? What's that beautiful music? And it seems as if these windows of heaven open upon us, whether these are images that we carry within us, that we lay upon that grand landscape of eternity, or whether these are actual occurrences, you and I will not know until we meet that place and our Savior on the day of our death. Now there are many that have offered plausible situations of descriptions of the unknown. John on the Isle of Patmos with his vision was perhaps primary in all of this group. That description that he offers of the holy city is fascinating. He starts out very simply saying, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You can almost imagine this, can't you? But even that metaphor was not filled to the point that it described for John what he was imagining in his heart. For he goes on to begin to talk about the size of the city. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with its rod 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are all equal. We also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement. 
And then he begins to describe the walls that are made of jasper. And the city is pure gold, even gold so fine as to be like pure glass. The foundation of the wall of the city was adorned with every jewel and jasper and sapphire and agate, emerald, and the list goes on of all of these precious jewels. And there in this verse 21, and the 12 gates are 12 pearls. Each of the gates is a single pearl. And the street of the city is pure gold. You've heard persons describe heaven where the streets are paved with gold. These images come to us out of this vision that John had. And they are longings of his heart, not just descriptions. They are longings of his heart that the world might be in good order. I read the story of someone who actually visited Patmos. And they said in their reflections on that place, anything that looks so desolate, how could it instill within him any kind of vision of hope? And yet hope he did because this was an inbreaking of God upon his life. I don't use that passage of scripture when I preach a memorial. In fact, I cannot think of even one instance in which I have referred to it in a funeral service. But I can tell you what I do refer to at my own choosing and also at the choosing of the families often that ask me to speak about their loved one and to comfort their hearts in grief. I read from John chapter 14 where Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many dwelling places or rooms or mansions, however your translation may have it. In my father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And I suppose this is what draws us in most of all, the idea that there is a place for me. Somewhere out there, there is a place for me. It is the desire of our hearts to be able to go to that place when God is ready to draw us home. And yet it's interesting that Jesus did not focus so much on this idea of heaven as some place to which we would go. Of course, he's the one that spoke these words and was an encouragement to his disciples. But most of the time when he was talking about the kingdom of God, God's kingdom, heaven, he was referring to heaven's coming to us, not our going to heaven. Have you ever heard someone described as so heaven-directed that they were of very little earthly good? That's not a description that we want of ourselves, other people to utter this. But it is the case that you and I have the tendency to be more focused on heaven as some distant thing than we are the inbreaking nature of God. The kingdom of God was a subversive phrase the Jews were subjected to Roman rule in Jesus' day, of course, but they had known centuries of subjugation to the powers that be all in that region. And they were tired of it. 
it was a struggle for them to imagine life any other way than the way that it was. But they had hope that things would change. You remember the story of how Jesus, during his last days of ministry, came into Jerusalem. He had sent the word ahead to bring a donkey that he could ride in. And when he rode down the streets, that people were so taken with his very presence there and the idea that he was ushering in the kingdom of God, that they laid their cloaks on the road and they waved palm branches. You and I celebrate this on Palm Sunday. That as he came into the city of Jerusalem, there was this very threatening thing that Rome would have said was threatening, even though it was not some military power that was coming in. Just the idea of someone else using the words kingdom of God as opposed to the kingdom of Caesar, who was the God, was a thing that was underwriting the government. It was replacing in people's minds what should be the right order. Jesus talks about how the kingdom of God comes to us. In Matthew, he reflects with his disciples about the parable of the mustard seed. And he says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds. But when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs. And it becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. And he goes on to say, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. You expect the story to go further, but that's it. That's the parable that Jesus laid out. And the reason is you and I have such a hard time with the idea that anything is happening now. But this is exactly Jesus' point is that all of it is happening now. If we would only sense that this is taking place in our lifetime, at this very moment, it would change our perspective and even our behavior in the world. I can remember when our firstborn was handed to me by the doctor. He placed that little one in my arms and I thought, oh no. <laughs> I realized that my kingdom had changed. My little bit of kingdom was going to take much care, much responsibility, much love. And the next time around, they began to come in multiples. We had twins. God cares for us enough to tell us, don't wait on this aspect of the Christian faith. Don't involve yourself with the notion solely that heaven is something far off in your distant future. But take of that precious substance of the kingdom of God in your midst right now. You and I are called to be a people who pray without ceasing. That's what Paul said. Pray without ceasing. Jesus' disciples came to him and said, how should we pray? And he gave them this prayer that we've been focusing on. 
How should we pray? They weren't looking for the, the, the idea of prayer, the interior idea of prayer, as much as they were looking for the mechanics of prayer. And Jesus was seeking to give to them another concept of how close God is in prayer. We can pray and not feel God's closeness even. You and I are not so much about the idea of mastering a skill. Oh, if you wanted to master a skill, you would really have to focus on that skill. If you wanted to play the piano, if you wanted to play the violin, you couldn't just simply say to yourself, I think I'll practice a couple of times and then I'll be on with it. You and I must devote ourselves to the idea of welcoming God into our lives for this prayer to take on the significance that Jesus meant it to have. I was reading Martin Luther King Jr.'s acceptance speech when he received the Nobel Peace Prize. And one of the things that he said is fascinating. He said, I accept this award today with an audacious faith in the future of mankind. I refuse to accept the idea that the isness of man's present nature makes him morally incapable of reaching up for the eternal oughtness that forever confronts him. Now that is a weighty quote. And so I'm going to read it again and ask you to pay attention to it one more time. Listen again. I accept this award today with an audacious faith in the future of mankind. I refuse to accept the idea that the isness of man's present nature makes him morally incapable of reaching up for the eternal altness that forever confronts him. You can imagine what he had on his mind. In fact, he went into speaking about racism and particularly at this moment in his life and the backlash that he was receiving from those who felt like that he should not be such a peace-loving leader. But there were points where he should push past that. And yet his heart was filled with the nature of who God was to be a person of peace in the world. You and I pray this prayer and get so confused in our spirits because when we pray the prayer, we think our kingdom come, not God's kingdom, not thy kingdom come, but we have this picture in our mind of what our kingdom should be. William Barclay is known best for having written a wonderful commentary, a layman's commentary of the New Testament years ago. What he says about this phrase is so apropos. He says, this is no prayer for the one who wishes to stay the way he is. I love that. You and I must give ourselves to the nature of this prayer and allow it to change us, to look at the world differently. When Jesus knelt in Gethsemane and prayed, he was looking at the reality of his impending arrest, his flogging, his death on the cross. And he asked of the Lord, let this cup pass from me. 
And yet even in the breath of speaking those words, he knew what the answer to this was. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. You and I could rise to the occasion if we would choose to see that this is something that God wishes to work within us, not somewhere out in the future. It's not that God is not the one cradling eternity in his hands. He is. But for us to think that our job as Christians is simply to prepare ourselves for that eternal place, we've missed what Christ was up to. Christ has come to share with us this prayer that he knew his disciples needed to pray. Thy kingdom come on earth, on earth as it is in heaven. What is it about who you and I are that God might use to set the world in right order? When Jesus, just before he ascended, spoke to his disciples, someone came to him and said, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? I have a feeling he shook his head at this question. And he said, it is not for you to know the times or the periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you, you get that pronoun, don't you? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, which is exactly what occurred in Pentecost, the Holy Spirit that set them aflame to think that heaven is not something so far out there, but it's happening right here. They embraced the idea. The Pharisees have a hard time with this. As Luke tells the story, Jesus had a conversation with Pharisees. One, once Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming, and he answered in saying, the kingdom of God is not coming with things that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For in fact, the kingdom of God is among you. Now, the question is, how much is it among you? Because you and I have a tendency to build our own kingdom, our own authorities, without truly receiving what God would have be here in our world. May God help us, for he knows we need help in imagining what his will is to place heaven on this earth. One of the most precious persons on this planet is Sue's brother, Steve Bullington. And in fear that my brother might hear me saying this, I've heard him say the same thing. Steve is a precious soul filled with the very Spirit of God. He has spent his life almost in a monastic setting over in Scott, Georgia at Greenbow House of Prayer. He lives in what is called a hermitage. 
which is no bigger than what you could basically turn around in and touch the walls with your fingers extended. He, quote unquote, retired just this past month. He turned 65 in May. And so he's rich. He's getting $500 from Social Security. And it's his perspective on life that is so profound because even living in abject poverty his world is flavored every day with the essence of heaven here on this planet he believes that God is here among us do you believe this do you see God's kingdom being birthed in our midst you and I have the opportunity to celebrate what Steve would call the sacrament of the present moment. I've heard him use those words over and over and over again. Will we see this as our prayer? Will it become a part of our lives to say and to mean, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? May God help us as we seek to make that true.